You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. That music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter. And I get to say it's a bright, beautiful, sunny Davis day because there's blue sky out there and sunshine. And it's going to be high in the 80s. This is like perfect weather, Don. 87 degrees today. We're recording this broadcast on September 23rd. It will air on September 24th, 2020. So it's the first fall broadcast of the Davis Garden Show for 2020. And it feels like fall right now. Let's talk about the weather. 73 degrees as we uh, broadcast now. It's clear and the humidity is 43% and dropping. It's going to be probably around 20% by mid-afternoon. Southwest breeze, everything we love so much here in the Sacramento Valley. And the night temperature is going to be 57 degrees. Day of the broadcast, 85 degrees. Night temperature, 54 degrees. Friday, 86 degrees. Night temperature, uh uh-oh, 61 degrees. And suddenly... We're back in summer again. Saturday, 93 degrees. Saturday night, 64 degrees. The National Weather Service has issued a, I'm sorry to say, fire weather watch in effect from September 26th to September 28th because the wind is going to shift from the north. Temperatures are going to go up. And looking at the extended forecast, it's looking like we'll probably hit 100 degrees on Sunday the 27th with a night temperature of 66 I'm looking at weather underground on this one now because the weather service is a little more circumspect on this. Monday, 103. Tuesday, the 29th, 104. Wednesday, the 30th, dropping down to 101. Thursday, 100 degrees, and Friday, 97 degrees. So all of next week, anywhere from seven to 13 degrees above average for this time of year. Night temperatures next week in the mid 60s. So we not only have a little bit of a mini heat wave coming, but also north wind. And so we're concerned again about fire watch. Just want to mention that that does affect your garden somewhat. Should keep the tomatoes ripening and things like that. But uh, a lot of you are out there buying and planting your coal crops and your lettuces and your things like that. I fully expect we'll get some concern about those little seedlings being out in the ground. You don't need to shade them. Just keep them watered. And if you just planted them, that means checking them daily. You've planted it out of a little six pack or a little single pot that's got a two inch root system. It's gonna need you to water each morning before you leave. I would strongly suggest you take a quick walk through your garden before you head off to work because on a 104 degree day, you get home, that plant is gonna look very good. Yes, they'll recover, speaking from experience, but be for sure it would be better not to stress it. Just give it a good soaking each day as you leave. We'll get through this. Go ahead. And if it's only got a two-inch root, that's not a lot of water. So you're not wasting water by watering those little plants. Yeah, this time of year, because I have summer vegetables out there, you know, which are getting deep soakings fairly infrequently, and then these little new plants nearby, I don't want to have to turn the whole system on just for the little plants. So I keep a water can out there. And then what I do in the evening is I fill that up so that when I walk by in the morning, 
I'm running a little late, need to run to the car, at least I can go over, give each plant a drink before I go, check at the end of the day, fill that water can up in the evening so that it's there for the next morning. These plants will root in quickly. I mean, even though even the tender looking things like lettuce will root in rapidly. And within just a few days, you shouldn't need to give this careful daily attention. But lots of people buying and planting vegetables right now. And then we're going to jump back into a summer style heat wave. So it's only going to... If you still haven't put them in the ground, yeah, uh, would it be better to wait till after the heat wave to get your plants and put them in? Um, I plant right through the heat if I have to because I have the plants and I want to get it done and I water when I plant and I check again the next morning. If you're attentive to your plants, you can plant. Um, if you're really busy, probably better to keep them on the porch near your door with a water can nearby and water them there just because I'm concerned about you putting them out in the open and not not watching them. This is the difference between, I won't call them, let's, let's call them fervent gardeners who check their garden twice a day and people who have just gotten into gardening but have lives, you know, busy lives and stuff that they're doing and maybe go to, you know, aren't there all day. Um, you're probably going to keep a closer watch on a plant in a container by the door than something way out in the yard. It's really just a matter of follow-up. I mean, I plant when it's hot and I just monitor the watering, but if there's going to be any question about that, keep it closer at hand. I guess my question really was, if I haven't bought the plants yet, ah, do I hold off getting them and wait till it's cooler to plant sure. them? Or it's actually a great, a great plan because I always think that with these little seedlings that we sell at nurseries, you should buy them when you're ready to put them in the ground. Yeah. When they sit there in the pot, they what I say at, where we are, if we bring them in and they're little packs and they aren't selling in the packs, move them, move them to four inch, keep them moving so the roots keep growing. Just like we talk about in the spring with tomatoes, uh, the plant will be healthier. If you've got a little six pack of cabbages and you're not getting it in the ground, move them into four inch pots. You spend a little potting soil to keep that plant vigorous and healthy. The more root bound it is, the more stunted it gets. It's just harder for it to get going. And even better, get your bed ready, plan for it, have your, your weekend worked out, and then go buy your plants when it's time to actually get, when you have time to actually get them in the ground. I really think that's the best plan. Um, don't worry, nurseries will have them. This isn't like the spring where we were running out of stuff this year. Uh, kale, broccoli, cabbage, lettuce, all that stuff is coming in. Nurseries will have plenty. The, the growers are ready for you. We're going to do one of those public service announcement things where we tell you about some of the great resources in the area. And one of my favorites is Tree Davis. We know that trees improve air and water quality, lower city infrastructure costs, and cool our summer temperatures, and thus reduce energy demands. Well, Tree Davis is working to keep Davis green, clean, and cool by enhancing and expanding our own urban forest. For more information, including tree planting guides and volunteer opportunities, just visit treedavis.org. I think you like that one so much because it's Davis, where you have had your business for a zillion years, and it's trees, which you really like. Yes, I'm also on the board of directors. Oh, well, that'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> so we usually say you're, something you're about back. one I'm of on, the... I'm on the, public, I'm on the um, um, public outreach committee, so I really feel compelled. Really? Yes, I really feel compelled to read that public service announcement every now and then. Part of my job description. We also have great. I, <laughs> I do hope you have a link to Tree Davis on your commercial website. Also, uh, any minute now. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. <laughs> There's also lots of great programming here at KDRT. We like yes. to tell you about some. What have you got, Lois? Well, I wanted to tell you about Jitan. Now, Jitan does heart to heart. 
And that's a show that's been going on for a long time. And when the pandemic hit and we weren't able to go into the station anymore, uh, she, she was, they were playing repeats for her. And we're still not going into the station. I know some people are, but we're not. But uh, Jitan has started producing shows. And so she has new recorded shows coming on. I happen to know this for a fact because today, just before we recorded what we're recording right now, I was a guest on Jitan's show. Oh, so cool. coming up in a couple of weeks, I don't know exactly when, but in a while, there will be a program with both Jitan and Lois. Okay. And Jitan talks about how to live a life fully and lovingly, yeah. something like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Heart. It's on, uh, I don't remember when it runs, but you can find out when any of the programs run and when their replays are by going to kdrt.org and clicking on the program guide. And you can read all about the shows there. And you can also find a little link down at the bottom that allows you to download them automatically to your computer. That's called podcasting yep. or RSS feed. The RSS feed is right there. An email. Uh, we want to answer this one from Holly. Uh, she's in Redlands. Uh, hi, Don and Lois. I hope this email finds you well. I hope it's less smoky up in NorCal by now. Oh, yes, thankfully it is. We can see the sky in SoCal now, but the air quality still isn't very good. I was wondering what your recommendations are for pruning salvia gregii in terms of times of year, frequency, and how severely the plants can be pruned back. Mine are getting very woody and leggy. I've done some research online, but I'm getting conflicting information. As always, thanks for your help, and I really love your show. Take care. Holly. Well, yes, you will get very conflicting information. First of all, Salvia gregii itself is the one that's commonly known as autumn sage. Mm -hmm. It blooms in the fall. It came on the market in the early 1990s and uh, caught on in a big way because it strongly attracts hummingbirds, very easy to grow, quite drought tolerant, but also tolerant of garden conditions. You know, some drought tolerant plants don't take summer water. Well, this is fine if you water it or not. I've planted it in the original form in various places on my property, and very quickly, Salvia gregii was hybridized with Salvia microphylla, which is a very similar sage, ornamental sages is what we're talking about here. And then a couple of other species, and these all come from the American Southwest, New Mexico, Arizona, as well as Northern Mexico. And they hybridize about four different species, as I understand it, very, very readily. And this leads to some confusion, because they differ somewhat in their growth habits. And a lot of the ones you buy now, there's probably 75 to 100 hybrids between these different species and selections that have come on the market. You go into a garden center in California, they're going to have several and many of them, and there'll be a range of colors now from the original red to lighter pink. There's even yellow. There's a bicolor one called Hot Lips that's incredibly popular. It's pretty hard to tell them apart. In fact, in some cases, they don't even say whether they're Salvia gregii. Salvia microphylla. For a while, the hybrids were labeled Salvia jamesonii, indicating it was a cross between them. You bring these plants together in a, in a botanical garden, you get seedlings coming up. Who knows what the parentage is? And sometimes they're really cool. And the one thing I've noticed in general, the Greggii types is what I'm calling them now, are tall and leggy and somewhat open at the base, which is the original one. I get four to five feet. It blooms really nicely out there in the fall, yeah, uh, very heavily. See, you can see through the plant. It's got an open kind of rugged character, shall we say. And the microphyllas have a whole lot of stuff that comes up from the base. And lots of vigorous shoots from the base always happening. They tended, tended originally to be more compact. Flowers look the same. You can't tell them apart by the flower. All, all the salvias in that group, the flower structure is basically the same. 
the microphyllas had a much more pungent foliage. And you could cut them back as much as you wanted because they kept sending up shoots from the base. Whereas the Gregii, it's kind of open and sparse at the base. And if you cut them back hard, every now and then I would do that and the plant would just die, as would happen with lavender, for example. So the reason you're getting conflicting information is one, they're very mixed parentage and we can't really make an absolute rule. Two, people are growing them in wide range of, of climate conditions. These are plants that come from a region where it actually rains in the summer. It's very dry, very hot. New Mexico, Arizona, northern Mexico, but it rains when monsoon storms come up off the Gulf and pour on them. One summer a couple of years ago, Tucson, Arizona had six inches of rain. That would never happen in northern California. Some of that rain spilled over into southern California, actually where Holly is, they probably got some of it. So they're not fussy about overwatering in the sense that many California natives are. We often give you real clear rules about pruning things like ceanothus, because if you prune them in the rainy season, you may get dieback and so forth. With these, my experience has been, you can cut them back hard if they're getting leggy. The time we would normally do it is the fall, except that's when Salvia gregii is at its peak of bloom. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people wait until after that, let's say November, and cut them back. And then you have this thing that's cut back that doesn't sprout out much until spring because you're in cold or overcast weather up here you may have different conditions in Southern California. So my personal pattern has been to prune them in the spring. Prune them 25%, 50% if you want to retain the basic shape of the plant. But from a mistake that was made on my property, where the guy who mows my grass with his tractor hit them with his tractor, not once, but twice, two different years, taking them down to six inches, sometime in March or April, and I thought, oh, well, that's that, that's the end of it. And then watching them re-sprout vigorously and beautifully and restore themselves with great vigor and, uh, and they form a very attractive appearance, I have found that you can cut them back hard in the spring. And that minimizes your loss of bloom. It's the time they're ready to grow and they seem to come back fine from it. There's a slight risk that you're gonna have the plant just die back, especially if it gets really rainy or something like that. But typically, my experience has been a spring, spring pruning, 25% is no problem. Much harder is okay with a very slight risk that the plant might die back at that point. And you go online, yes, you find all kinds of rules. You'll never cut it more than 25%, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think those and the, rules... And the microphylla can be cut back as, as much as you want it with no yeah. problem. So if this is a hybrid cross and it has more of one than of the other, either way, your spring hard pruning will be fine. Yeah, and you can continue into the summer if you have some reason to. I just do more pinching and, and light trimming then just because you've got all that bloom developing for the fall. I've, I have learned that you can kind of tell them apart a little bit. Microphylla has a much more pungent scented foliage. They're both kind of medicinal smelling, but there's no mistaking the smell of salvia microphylla compared to Gregii. So that would give you some indication, but experiment, honestly, these are plants that I have found you can cut surprisingly hard. I just don't personally do it in the fall because that's when they're at their absolute peak of bloom. Mine are just coming right now into the point where the whole top of the shrub is a massive bloom. Yeah, why would I prune it, you know, when I'm enjoying that flowering? So I just do it mostly in the spring. So I guess my question is, why prune it at all? I but mean, like, it's yeah, a bush. It depends on your, your preference. The, the Greggi has got leggy. There's no question. They're tall. So what I would do is just crowd them in with things that are bushier in front of them. So mm -hmm. I have salvias 
along with things like rosemary and lavender all over my property. They're some of my favorite things to just stick in random places. If a gopher is a problem in an area, I plant one of those three because they don't touch them. They don't like anything <laughs> in that family. There, I have them in a lot of different places now, and they're great. I mean, they bloom. The rosemary gives me bloom in the winter time, and at other times, but heavily in the winter. The lavender is May, June, July, depending on it, and then you get the fall bloom on the salvia. So if you're doing older-fashioned salvia, Greg, guy, just bear in mind that that lankier growth habit and group it with something that'll cover that. Um, so it's mainly just aesthetics. It doesn't. It's not necessary. You don't absolutely have to prune them. I have found it renews them nicely if you do it at the right time, which seems to be my preference is spring. So how tall will they get if you let them go, the old-fashioned ones? I have one that's five feet tall. Five feet is not that tall. Well, yeah. See, I was thinking you were talking about 10 or 20 feet, and that no, would be no, this isn't like, difficult. Uh, this is like butterfly bush or some of those other soft-wooded plants that just turn into these great lanky things, which is a whole other conversation, buddleias. Okay. Uh, but it's in the same category. These are soft-wooded shrubs, and so you'll see these rules about how to prune them. I think they may apply more to rainier climates. That's my guess on where those rules come from. So, all right. So if I buy a plant and it doesn't tell me its parentage, I can't know if it's going to be short and bushy or tall and leggy. Correct. But if my neighbor has a short bushy one and I have a tall leggy one, is there any way to take a cutting from that, grow it, and then know I'm going to plant a short bushy one underneath it? Salvia root incredibly easily from cuttings. If See, you... I knew there was <laughs> a way. Okay, here's the thing. These are in the mint family. And you can tell, you look at the flower, anyone who's taken, you know, early botany, you learn certain plant families are really easy to identify. Labiata, now Lamiaceae, is one of the easiest. It has bilabiate flowers, which means they have lips and they're, you know, they're only, uh, they, look in a, they look a particular way. Go, go to Pinterest, look for Redwood Barn, and you'll find a whole gallery of salvia flowers that I did years ago. Um, and they're all, their structure's all the same. Then you look for the square stem. Everybody who takes botany remembers square stem on mint family. Almost anything with those characteristics will root easily. Mint will, of course, and anything related to it, and salvias and things like that. Yes, if you see one you like, take a cutting. And many of them are coming on the market without any indication what their parentage is in some cases because the breeder simply doesn't know uh, at this point. There's this, this intercrossing of them has been so complex. One of the best websites for reference on salvia is uh, Suncrest Nurseries down in the Bay Area. Their website is outstanding and they had a breeder there who introduced many of the current salvias on the market. He was working with them. He worked on uh, both salvias and passifloras. Those were his areas of specialization. He introduced a lot of the very cool salvias on the market. Very common for them to arrive in my nursery. Salvia, single quote, maraschino or whatever the cultivar is, single quote, no indication of what the parentage is. If it's patented, I can look it up. But at this point, I don't really care. I just crush a leaf. And if it's particularly pungent, I go, ah, probably microphyllotype, probably flushes more from the base. If it's sort of more medicinal and less pungent, I go, more Greggii type, taller, leggier. Keep that in mind when you locate it in the garden. So one of the things that comes up periodically in our shows is I would like to reproduce and shoot from one of these plants. So we were speaking earlier about salvias and how easy they are to propagate. So how do you, from, from something easy like that, how do you get a new plant out of an old plant for a salvia? What do you do? Simplest thing is to take a cutting 
what time of year works best varies from one plant to another, but honestly, just experiment. Trial and error is the foundation of plant propagation. We call it empirical research. But my takeaway from studying it was there's just try it. Some things root incredibly easily, some never root, and some things are kind of in between. Keep your cutting wood wet. That's the most important thing. Don't let it dry out, especially if it's a leafy thing. So if you're getting some cuttings from a friend, stick them in a pickle jar with water, put them, wrap them with damp paper towel and put them in a plastic bag, whatever it takes to keep them damp until you can actually process them. Many people like to root in water and that's okay. It's not optimal. Part of the reason for that is that the roots that form on our stem in water are poorly attached and fragile. And so people who take them out often have the experience as they go to pop them up of them just breaking off. I'd rather personally root right into a rooting medium. And that's going to be something you can buy at a garden center called uh, Seed Starter Mix, works just fine for cuttings, or you can use peat moss or coir, usually mixed with perlite or vermiculite, something like that, some light fluffy stuff that drains fast but retains moisture and is basically naturally sterile. Not garden dirt, not compost, not potting soil with compost, but something that's naturally sterile. So personally, I use a mix of 50-50 peat moss and perlite. And I use rooting hormone, which you can buy at any hardware store or garden center. And we know that that greatly increases the rate and the amount of root production. So you take your, your salvia that you've got a 12 inch piece of, you strip off the leaves on the bottom part because that's gonna go into the soil. Make sure that two of the nodes, N-O-D-E-S, nodes are in the soil, one at minimum, two is even better because that's where the roots are gonna form. Dip this thing right in the rooting powder, stick it right in the medium that you're rooting in. You can put five or six in a pot. I do that all the time. I'll just take a six inch pot or whatever I've got, I'll fill it with this light, fluffy starting soil mix, and I'll dip, dip and stick, dip and stick until there's six of them in there. I water, 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 water to keep the leaves wet. And now it's a race against time. Will the plant desiccate before it forms roots? Because it can only take up a very small amount of moisture through the cut end on the stem. Backing up a little bit, I've always made a fresh cut before it goes in there to enhance its ability to take up water. But the poor little plant with all those leaves up there is trying to take up water through a little tiny piece of stem and has no roots yet. When we were working with bigger tropical plants in a greenhouse that had big leaves, we would cut them in half to reduce the water loss through the leaf to give that plant a head start on getting those roots out going to, to try and sustain the top because those leaves are pumping water, pumping water, pumping water, and it's going to dry out before it has a chance to form roots. And then your life will be a lot easier if you put it in something resembling a greenhouse. And the purpose of the greenhouse is to protect it from wind and, also, and reduce the water loss through the leaves. So the humidity is a, is a factor uh, and the lack of air movement. And unlike seedlings, where we're always telling you to put them out and put them in good air movement, here we want the opposite. We want a nice steamy environment to reduce water loss through the leaves. Generally rooting takes four to six weeks. Don't tug on them. <laughs> Mark your calendar, do not tug on them for four to six weeks. Even if they look like they're growing, sometimes they'll start to grow even without roots and you pull them up and you break off the, the beginning nub of a root and you poor little plant has to start over. And within about four to six weeks, you'll know whether it's likely to work. At that point, you might just have callus tissue, but you might have actual root development. And then as soon as the roots are growing, you move them out into an actual soil where they'll get some nutrients. They don't want nutrients or need them in the, in the rooting process, but they'll be benefiting from them as soon as they actually start to root. 
Okay, so that's great. I have a couple of questions, as mm -hmm. I always do. One is when you take a cutting, you 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 want to be careful not to destroy the the host, the mother plant, if you will. Right. So you take the cutting from the side shoot. That doesn't make. Um, no do you need do you need to have this year's growth, last year's growth? Well, that, like I mentioned before, trial and error because that varies. I can tell home gardeners that on a shrub. Uh, woody plant like that. What usually works best for a home gardener who doesn't have a mist bench or some fancy propagation site is semi-hardwood. This spring's growth that has just started to harden up. So it's not totally soft tissue that's just going to wilt and collapse quickly, but it's not fully ripened wood late in the summer when it just seems to not root as well. That's just an observation over many years by people who do plant propagation. So semi-hardwood is seems to work best. Now I'm doing rose cuttings at all different times of year and they're a good example. Uh, they work great, semi-hardwood. They work great when the plant is dormant, which is another time to do some plants. And uh, if you had a mist bench, you could actually do them even softwood. The, the problem is you gotta keep constant moisture on them and home gardeners just don't have a way to do that. So there's differences from one plant to another. My suggestion is just try it. Try, keep, keep the stuff around. Someone gives you a rose that you think is beautiful, snip the bottom off, cut that flower off, you know, pull off the, the leaves, put it in, dip it in the hormone, put it in your already purchased planting soil, potting soil that's designed for that and see if it roots. Sometimes they will, sometimes they won't. And then my last question on this topic is, you talked about making a little greenhouse and I'm wondering if this might be another uh, possibility for those uh, translucent milk cartons with the bottoms cut off. Anything like that, an old aquarium or something like that. Yeah, now there's, there's a risk when you do that that you're going to, you know, have a growth of mold or something like that. But really the, the, the biggest risk when you're taking a cutting is it's going to dry out before it gets a chance mm -hmm. to grow. So yes, a, a, a milk jug over it, a two liter soda bottle, preferably clear. Uh, don't set these out in full sun. When I do rose cuttings, for example, mm -hmm. and just one example, I do them in a greenhouse I happen to have that's in part shade, part sun. And I start them in the parter shade part. Mm -hmm. And then as they begin to grow, I move them to the parter sun part. Those aren't actual words, are they? I move them from the shadier part to the sunnier part. But I don't do that initially because I want them a little more sheltered. At home, yeah, the shade of a high tree, the porch that has got an overhang covered with something. Now, my mom always had old aquariums around. We had like 10 of them in the back of the house. They were there because we tended to come home with, you know, snakes and tarantulas and things that needed a home very quickly. But if you were propagating, <laughs> an aquarium is the handiest thing in the world. You just set it upside down over your little cuttings as they root or put them in it, pretending you have a terrarium and covering it with saran wrap or something like that. Uh, you know, it, it, these are handy things to keep around. And like you say, the, uh, the big plastic bottles work fine with the top open so that air does get out. Keep an eye on them, lift them up every now and then so that there's a little circulation, put them back on. Uh, but you're only doing this for a few weeks. You're doing it during the rooting period. Once they start to grow, obviously better for the plant to start moving into an environment that's more like what it's ultimately gonna grow in. So my rose cuttings are an example. They start in the shaded part of the greenhouse. The cuttings move into the sunnier part of the greenhouse as they start to grow. I transplant them and move them to a brighter greenhouse, but not 
blinding full sun. And then once they're rooted into the gallon cans, they sit out in full sun. There's a four-step process. That's because I'm growing them for sale. If you want to just grow something for fun, you don't have to go to all that trouble. And a lot of you doing house plants, you know, many house plants are unbelievably easy to root. You don't have to go through all this fall all for your golden pothos or your, you know, your Zebrina, Tradescantia type plants. You can just stick them right in water or soil, watch the roots, pot them up. If you lose half of them, well, big deal. You know, you're not trying to make money, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, Don, I want to tell our listeners about one of my favorite paragraphs that you have ever written. Now, <laughs> understand that, they, that Don writes a lot. He has an article in the Davis Enterprise. Consider it a pre-blog blog. Before there were blogs, there was Don <laughs> writing articles for the Davis Enterprise. And he's got most of those articles up on his website. The old ones are on which site, Don? Um, redwoodbarn.com. And then about oh, a few years back, they finally really upgraded the website at the Davis Enterprise. So I linked to those. And you can read at least a couple, I think a few there, free without a subscription. If you're local, you definitely should have a subscription to your local newspaper, but you can link to at least a couple of them there. And so he's written lots of articles over the years, and this one is one of my favorites. Let me read you this paragraph. Bulbs have got to be the easiest things we plant in the garden with the highest bloom to effort ratio. Dig a hole, stick them in, cover it with soil and water. The rains come along and do the rest. A few weeks later, up they come, growing and blooming without any work by you. Yeah, bulbs are incredibly easy to grow. And it's a mystery to those of us in the nursery industry that bulb sales, sales of plants in the bulb form, and we're using the term broadly here, have dropped and dropped and dropped over the years to the point that a lot of bigger garden centers pretty much discontinued them. Uh, those of us that are old-fashioned now, mid-September, mid-October is when the bulbs start coming in, the ones you're thinking of, daffodil, tulips, things like that. And uh, we're hoping that one of these new generations will come along and discover this amazing invention of nature, <laughs> which is a plant ready to go that you can just buy and you, there's no hurry. You can take it home, let it sit on your counter for a few weeks, take it out, stick it in the ground, find out how deep to plant it, water it in, do it right before the rains come and sort of forget about it and walk back out there in our area, February, March, it'll be blooming, uh, maybe as late as April, depending on what it is. Mm -hmm. And this is true with the range of bulbs available all over the country. My mother attended Wellesley College you know where that is, somewhere back there. And one of the traditions for Wellesley girls as they came in to their, their, their first as fresh women was that each one took out a King Alfred daffodil bulb and planted it. And this had been going on for years and years and years. King Alfred is the traditional big yellow trumpet daffodil to the point that thousands and thousands and thousands of daffodils bloom at Wellesley College every year. And that's what you get from a bulb. You don't have, in most cases, you don't have to do anything after you've planted it. You don't have to dig it up again. You don't have to put it in the refrigerator after you've dug it up, if you've done that. You don't have to feed it anything special. They don't have any special requirements in the case of most bulbs. The only question really is, is it something that's cold hardy in your, in your area? Will it multiply and you have a place that's sunny enough for it? And if not, look for some of the ones that do well in the shade. But there's really a bulb-like plant for practically every situation. 
we're incredibly fortunate in California because we can not only grow most of those traditional ones that people know, the daffodils and tulips and crocus and hyacinths and things like that, but there's also an amazing array of bulb-like plants from South Africa, which would be too tender for most of you listening in places where it freezes or where there's snow, but which not only grow here, but in many cases multiply freely and naturalize. Uh, Watsonias and Crocosmias and Tritomias and all kinds of things that you can just plant a half dozen or a dozen and watch them not only increase where you plant them, but reseed into other parts of your yard. And other familiar ones like the Amaryllis belladonna, the so-called naked lady, which I planted on my property here more than three decades ago. Those same plants are, are blooming and where I planted three or four bulbs, there are now 30 or more. So this is one of those really easy input plants that we keep hoping will get rediscovered. And we're hoping that all of you folks that decided to garden this spring for the first time will now start looking around and going, what are these things in boxes at nurseries <laughs> and hardware stores? That's a picture of a daffodil. That doesn't bloom now, it blooms in the spring. Yes, you plant it now. Uh, we're happy to sell them to you in the spring in bloom. I mean, profit-wise, that's even better for all of the retailers, but you can get so many more buying them in bulb form, planting them correctly, finding the right place for them, and that's it. You don't have to do anything more after that. Okay, so I want to read the techie part now. Okay. And that is that we're talking about bulbs, but bulb is is a specific term, but we're using it in the general fashion. As far as I understand, a bulb is something that you can hold in your hand, you plant underground when it doesn't have any leaves or anything, and then it comes up and it blooms, and then it dies back again, and it's just the thing under the ground. That's my interpretation of a bulb. Now, I know that some things are bulbs in a true sense. And that yeah. is, and I'm going to read that little, little description here, a true bulb has a set of overlapping fleshy leaves, usually surrounded by paper, papery dry skin that protects it from drying, like an onion. Yeah. Cut a true bulb in half and it'll look something like an onion on the inside. It'll also be useless once you cut it in half. Uh, <laughs> Don't do this to one. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and only once in your life is necessary. And you can just watch the video and then you don't have to actually kill any bulbs. Uh, corms, rhizomes, and tubers are other modified stems that are often sold as bulbs, even though they are technically different. The, the primary function of each of these is to store food and some water, and each has one or more growing points to start new plants. Yeah, the official term for all those other kinds that are not bulbs is geophytes. That's no, they're going to call them bulbs. Yeah, forget the geophyte thing. Earth, earth livers. And so you have corms and tubers and rhizomes which function like a bulb, but they aren't actually bulbs. The, the classic is the onion or the lily. Those are an actual bulb bulb. Easy way to remember it typically is to look at the... Uh, uh, the papery skin is a, is a real giveaway. There's tuberous roots and all kinds of other things out there. I mean, there's the general adaptation of a bulb is for drought. And this is something that most people don't um, realize. It's not a cold adaptation. That happens to be a nice bonus. But it's something that allows the plant to go for a long period without rainfall. Most of the important bulbs and bulb-like plants that we know came from Asia Minor. And when I say Asia Minor, I had fun writing an article later that you'll find at redwoodbarn.com called The Fondness for Geophytes. 
And I asked five people, quick, where's Asia Minor? And they're scratching their head going, Vietnam? Uh, where do you, South China? No, Asia, Mi <laughs> Asia Minor is the part of Turkey that's not in Europe, okay? Roughly. It's the part of Turkey, that's, which is 96% of Turkey, that's in Asia. So you cross it, and Istanbul, Constantinople, Istanbul straddles the straits, and you go from one side, Europe, to the other side, you're in Asia. And a significant number of the tulips and things like that, the daffodils, many of them, uh, were from that region. It's an area that's very surprisingly similar to California in the range of climate and elevation. They go all the way down to subtropical beaches and all the way up to an extremely high mountain, much as we do. And the bulbs are adapted to the drought. It's a very similar rainfall pattern to what we have here. And so bulbs are great for California gardens. They're great for low water landscapes. I don't know why this never really caught on with the, the xeriscape movement uh, when the, the drought really hit and you had designers who were designing lavenders and California natives and such. Well, bulbs fit right in that. They're absolutely perfect. They get all the water they need in the rainy season. They do their bloom, they're done. They're just underground waiting for the next rainy season. All you gotta do is try and remember where they are if, if that matters to you. So they're astonishingly easy to grow and in general, there's some really simple rules. A bulb is planted two times its depth. Okay, that sounds simple, but I need to explain it. A bulb that is two inches tall is planted with its bottom four inches deep. Does that make sense? I hope. You dig uh, a four-inch hole, put the thing in, and... Right, and that's not true for all of them, but it's true for most of them. You know, amaryllis, the neck should be up and out of the ground, so bearded irises are planted only half in the ground. So as with when you took French in high school, and you learn the verbs, then you learn the, uh, how, to, how to conjugate a verb, and then you learn the exceptions. As with that, as with bulbs, you learn the general rule, two times its depth, and then you learn the exceptions like amaryllis and bearded irises. So that's just getting a little bit more sophisticated. All that happens if you plant it too deep is it doesn't bloom. So, you know, dig and, it up and plant it a little bit higher. And the, uh, the bulbs that are, they have little roots hanging out the bottom yeah. are easy to plant because you can tell which side is which. But there are some of those things that you can't tell which is the top and which is the bottom. And so one of my friends who was one of your employees many, many years ago said, so plant it on its side. Yeah. And it was such a wonderful idea. <laughs> you put that thing in sideways. It doesn't matter which way is top and bottom. I mean, if you planted it with the roots up, it might or not be happy. But hey, on its side, what the heck? It'll grow. Now here's a case where an article I wrote back in 2004, we've actually kind of updated our, our understanding of how plants grow. And you'll find on there that I was mentioning use of bone meal and high phosphorus fertilizers because that was standard back then. We now know quite well that bulbs don't need that any more than any other plant does. Bone meal is, there's, don't, it's not gonna hurt, but it's not gonna do any good, so don't worry about it. Basically, they would benefit from the same fertilizer that other plants would benefit from, which is pretty much some nitrogen. That'll just make them grow more. They probably won't bloom any better necessarily, so don't worry too much about fertilizing them. And you can disregard the old advice about sticking bone meal under the bulb or anything of that sort. Commercial bulb foods tend to be very high in phosphorus for the same reason we've talked about before, the widespread belief that phosphorus stimulates bloom, not valid, not anything to be concerned about. Just plant them. If your soil has is normal, there shouldn't be any concern about that. Space them. Uh, and this, you know, this is something you should look at when you buy them. Space them far enough apart that you won't have them crowding each other. The only thing that happens over time, if you leave them in one spot, and you never dig them up. Some bulbs crowd so much that they stop blooming. 
And so you'd have to dig them up and divide them and separate them out. So give them a little extra space. One thing I like to do is just go out and dig a hole with a shovel, making sure that it's deep enough roughly for the bulbs. Take three, four, five bulbs, usually the same kind, but sometimes mixing the varieties, and just put them four to six inches apart in the shovel size hole. Fill over them with the, the loose soil. Plant one single viola or Johnny jump up on top because they can push right through that and it'll bloom nicely and remind you where they were. And uh, you're done. Water them in and you're done. I went down our whole county road years ago with a mix of daffodil and narcissus varieties. I mixed them all up. Every hole I planted three, all different kinds in most cases. And, uh, and just that planting now several years later, there are hundreds of blooms. Uh, some varieties have increased more than others, and that's something to ask local experts about because there's always varieties that do better in your area. Here in, in our part of California, the paper white group, the Tezeta Narcissus, multiply like crazy. They're especially adaptable in our region and in the coastal parts of California. But the very familiar daffodils also typically at least repeat. Some of them increase, and some of them increase quite a bit. But the exceptions that I should mention, tulips and hyacinths, will usually not multiply much here. They may come back in the case of tulips for a year or two, generally not, but sometimes for a year or two, sometimes for several, it does happen, some varieties especially. And hyacinths I've had repeat, but never increase much. So the very fragrant hyacinths, classic in, the, in Persian holiday tradition, really great in California. They will come back in the same spot and bloom, but where I planted one bulb, I get one bloom year after year after year. There's even an exception to the tulip thing, which is the species tulips or botanical tulips multiply quite well here in California, the little chrysanthas and some of the other types. So there's almost always an exception to the rule that's as suitable for your area. And just be aware that if you're in a much colder climate, there are some bulbs that will not overwinter successfully for you, like freesias, paper whites don't live in freezing climates, but you know that you probably do better there with tulips perhaps than we do. So there's a bulb for practically, a bulb type or group of types for practically every region. Okay, so I've got a couple of questions. You know I always have questions. Um, so if, if you take a bulb, plant it, it grows, makes a beautiful flower, you go out and you cut off that flower, mm -hmm. take it out and put it in a flower arrangement or something. Now, it's my understanding that if you cut off the bloom, that flower, that bulb will not get as much um, oomph for next season. Is that nope. true? No, no, and this is one of the, there's all these rules about bulbs, and maybe that's why people lost interest. We start making rules about bulbs and roses and things. People go, oh, that's too complicated. I can't do that. Uh, actually, what you're thinking of is a common advice not to cut the foliage off because the foliage is what rebuilds the, the bulb. You know what, those daffodils I've talked about along the county road, sometimes I'm mowing the weeds, sometimes I mow the foliage up, they come back just fine. I wouldn't do it year after year because the leaves are what rebuild the bulb for the next season. Uh, some people will tell you you must take off the seeds uh, because that's putting, it. all this comes back to is the idea that if a plant is putting energy into one thing, it has less energy to put into other things. Okay, so if you let it form seeds, where the flowers were, then it's not putting energy into the bulb. I suppose theoretically that's true, it follows logically, but in practice, most of us don't worry too much about it, and we find that they increase anyway if they're suited to our region. So the key thing, wherever you're listening, is find out what are the bulb types. 
is it daffodils? Is it species tulips? Is it grape hyacinths? Is it uh, little star flowers that's suitable to your area and increases readily without any attention on your part? Some of them, the ornamental onions, some of the alliums become weeds in this area. You know, so there, wherever you're listening, it's a high likelihood that there's a group of geophytes appropriate to your region, your climate, your soil. Some the, the big fancy plantings, I think these are again part of the problem. Those mass plantings of tulips where they're all blooming at the same time. One of my employees, after she left my uh, working for me, went down to Pier 39 in San Francisco and managed tulip mania. 30,000 plus tulip bulbs every year. Always planting new ones every year because that's the way to get the best impact for a big public display like that. And he planted them all at the same time and he planted them all at the same depth so they're all gonna bloom the same week. And that's how you get those amazing pictures of thousands of tulips blooming this day and thousands more blooming the next week and so on. That's a, I won't say contrived, but it's a carefully planned public display. You go to, to Holland, Kirkenhof and some of the other amazing gardens there, it's the same thing. But that's a short-term display done for the public. In your own garden, just start finding the ones that are easy to grow. The term we use is naturalize, ones that will just repeat on their own and increase if you're lucky, and look for those. And, and the thing is, they're out there. Wherever you're listening, there's a bulb, even Southern California, where it doesn't get that cold in the winter, so the, you know, the ones that need chilling aren't great for you, but you've got others. I planted bulbs in my garden in La Jolla, and my mother told me for years after that, she'd go out in the front yard, she'd, which was my garden, she'd forgotten they were there, she'd walk out and see things, see daffodils blooming that I had planted 10 years prior. So there were varieties that did well even down there. Okay, and then the next is, for those of us who don't live in a place where we have Either where, either where we have a big yard or we have a yard where, that we can see. In other words, it, if you're inside most of the time and you've only got a kitchen window, you're, you're not going to see all the way around your house. So are there bulbs that can be grown either indoors or in pots that you can move indoors when they're blooming? Absolutely. There's bulbs you can force indoors. Some of them are harder to do than others, and this always concerns me, this notion of taking common tulips and daffodils, for example, putting them in your, potting them up, putting them in your root cellar. Hey, Californians, how many of you have root cellars? <laughs> for X number of weeks, then moving them into your screened porch, well, we might have those, and then bringing them indoors to sort of replicate the conditions of a gradually warming spring. Most of my customers who have done that don't get very satisfactory results. But if they plant paper whites, if you don't happen to mind the fragrance, or look for the lower scented ones, or if they plant freesias, those will bloom indoors almost no matter what. And you know, the most spectacular ones are the big old Christmas amaryllis, as we call them, or the Dutch amaryllis. So a single bulb will produce these enormous six inch blooms and they last for, for several weeks. And they're actually quite easy to bloom indoors. And here, where we are, after they're done blooming, you can just stick that plant out in the garden and it'll come back and bloom in the summer, which is when it really should be blooming year after year. Colder climates, you will obviously have to protect them. So there are, there are bulbs that you can, what we call, the term is forcing, but what I really suggest is looking for bulbs that are just easy to bloom in pots and uh, set them on your front porch here uh, where they won't freeze, so we don't have that issue and let them come in to bloom, bring them in, enjoy the bloom, put them back outside. Now I mentioned paper whites and I know Lois doesn't like the fragrance of paper whites. And lots of people, by the way, don't like the fragrance of paper whites. It's pretty Makes me sneeze, you know. There's a bunch of them that aren't that powerfully fragrant. Look for a Ziva variety, it's lightly scented. 
pleasantly fragrant, still maybe more than you like, but not as bad as some of the others. And then the freesias have a fragrance that almost everybody seems to like. The only question then is what do you do with these things when they're done? If you live in a milder climate, the ones that I just mentioned can be put out in the garden and they'll just increase out there as long as you have a reasonably sunny location. And that does you can raise- leave them in the pot. Just leave put them the pot outside. Yeah, the pot, they'll run out of nutrients. So that's a case where you will probably need to feed them, but you can put the pot outside and let them grow out for the rest of the season, get the bulb built up. And then late summer, take them out, put them in some fresh soil that's nice potting soil and high likelihood they'll pop up and do it for you again. But they're just more likely to get crowded in the container. So the bulbs may not achieve, you know, that won't do that for as many years as they would in the ground. But mm -hmm. it's certainly something you can do. A, a big container with, with uh, bulbs in it, they can just increase like crazy. I've had people put freesias in half barrels, you know, just buy them in the spring and bloom, put them in a half barrel with other flowers. A couple of years later, the barrel is full of freesias. Again, I can think of worse problems. So it's <laughs> something that's very easy to do depending on the bulb. Okay. So you've been talking about bulbs that we're going to plant now. Right. And are there exceptions? Are there bulbs that maybe bloom in the fall and we plant in the spring or something like that? First of all, you, said now. you mentioned now, and it really is early it was, since it's 90 degrees today and the soil is very warm. Most of these things we're talking about are planted here in late October, November. Um, people putting them in warm soil, the tulips, for example, might not get such great results. So at my nursery, we actually tell the bulb supplier not to ship them to us until October. I want people planting them in the actual fall, not putting them into summer soil. They just work better that way has been my experience. So that's the first thing. And there's no hurry. You can plant bulbs, the ones we've talked about, all the way through January, right, here in Sacramento Valley and in Southern California and any climate like ours. Uh, you probably better get them. I, I looked this all up for a, for a talk one time. Any place that it snows <laughs> or the soil freezes, probably your bulb should be in the ground before that happens. <laughs> but you probably know that if you live in those regions. Your local garden center will give you better guidance. And then there's that whole other category. And this is the one that's really fallen off, is the, uh, the gladiolus, the dahlias, the tuberous begonias, the caladiums, the things that come into garden centers in the spring to plant for the summer. And my experience over starting over a decade ago was that people didn't buy them that way. So we just bring them in and pot them up and they buy them coming up and in bloom or in, in leaf in the case of caladiums. So the spring planted bulbs for summer bloom or summer leaves in the case of things like caladiums, they're less common than they used to be just because trends have uh, changed and people aren't as interested in those. But you can still find those plants in garden centers as plants. You want tuberous begonias, you're probably not going to find them in most garden centers. In the tuber form, you're going to find them already growing in pots. If they have a greenhouse, they have to get them off to an early start for you. Otherwise, they'll come in and find them already potted up. This is just the, one of the ways our industry has changed. So that leads me to yet another question, which is, if I go and I buy a caladium mm -hmm. and it's, it's got beautiful leaves and I buy it and it's in a pot and I take it home and I plant it, Will it still make a bulb? Does it, does it still have a bulb? Yeah, uh, I have right now on my front porch, I have a spectacular pot. It's about a 20 inch container where I put in eight or nine caladium bulbs and it's absolutely magnificent. And I would love to save those caladium bulbs and I've tried to do so in the past. Most of these spring planted summer flowering or leafy 
things are really truly close to tropicals. Mm -hmm. And that goes for the tuberous begonias and it goes for the caladiums more so than say the dahlias. So if you want to save them, you've got to take them out of that soil before the nights get into, let's say the low 40s. You've got to carefully let them dry off. You've got to wash them off. You've got to store them in a way where they won't rot. So that means sort of separate it out, perhaps in your garage if it doesn't get too cold in there. And most people find they don't get really outstanding results that way. So caladiums and tuberous begonias in general, people will buy new ones each year for that reason. It can be done. They can be salvaged and saved. And some of the things that we think of as being just like rampant weeds, like cannas, which are planted in the spring for summer bloom, we just leave them out there and they just turn into thickets because they thrive so well in California. Uh, touring a lovely botanical garden in Pennsylvania a few years ago, right at the end of their season, we were allowed in the day after they closed for the season. Uh, they were all pulling out the cannas and pulling up the elephant ears, the colocasias, and undoubtedly doing it to the caladiums and washing off the bulbs and tubers and rhizomes. And I said, what, uh, what do you do now? They said, well, we put them in the basement. And we, we fight each other for basement space because these have to stay down there till April. So it was the first week of November. So that's a long time to store something before it's ready to be put out again. So the average gardener is probably better off just going out buying nice fresh ones each spring or early summer. But it can be done. If you're frugal, it is possible to do it. And I'm going to ask you the question I asked you last week, and I didn't like the answer. So I'm going to try it again. <laughs> Spider lilies. I want to grow spider lilies. They bloom now and, or in August and they're beautiful, yeah. beautiful things. And I can't find them. That's correct. Yeah, these are, there's a lot of bulb collectors out there. And with the rise of the internet, mail order bulb companies are thriving, interestingly. Uh, these, these folks like you and, and people who are really into rare bulbs will go online and search out the suppliers of those kinds of things and pay pretty hefty prices. But good news, you only need a half dozen of those to have a good big stand of them. They're not coming from the regular wholesale distribution channels. You're finding the specialty growers and they're out there. And they're, as I say, like, like those who grow heirloom roses and things like that and unusual fruit trees, they have found a whole new market niche because they can sell through the internet. So if it's something you're not finding at a garden center and you don't have a friend that can dig some up and give them to you, it's time to go to the internet. Okay, but it's also time to call around every single nursery and garden center and any <laughs> other store that sells plants and tell them that you want them. And when they say that they, that they don't have them, whine, whimper, and say, are you sure you'll never get them again? And maybe yeah. people will start ordering them and selling them, and they'll become more popular. You'll create a demand. There's the idea. I'm an yeah. optimist. What can I say? That's right. Even better for some of these things, and this is one of the things about bulbs and all their relatives, a lot of them are so shareable. I mean, I didn't get any of the cannas on my property by buying them. <laughs> People gave them to me. I don't even, not that huge a fan of them, but I have hundreds. And in some places on my farm, they make wonderful kind of windbreak and wildlife cover. And the blooms are very attractive to hummingbirds. They're an over the fence kind of plant. They're the kind of thing you share with a neighbor. Uh, people keep coming in wanting me to order them amaryllis belladonna bulbs. And I say, okay, I'll go dig some up for you because I have hundreds <laughs> and I'll just charge a couple bucks for them or whatever. I'll make up some price because that's the way to get them. You're not going to find those in the retail channels. So they are great over the fence plants. And one of the other things about a lot of the bulbs that we enjoy, like the brodia, which are a native California bulb, yeah. is that they grow here 
in the wilds where it doesn't rain all summer. They're yeah. growing in a place where it, they get rain in the winter and then not in the summer. And our yards are not like that. So if you have bulbs that you are growing and failing with, consider your watering. Yeah, you may be overwatering them in the summer. I haven't happily mentioned that one because Brodia, as they, I usually hear it pronounced, Brodiaia, Brodiaia, are California native. It's one of the few bulbs in the trade that is a native to the uh, uh, over in the foothills and up in the coast range. And they do inhabit areas where there's basically no summer rainfall. Right. They're very attractive garden plants. And there are actually some hybrids that have been created from them that are quite tolerant of garden soil conditions. So that's a great one for those of us in USDA Zone 9 uh, here in Central California or Southern parts of California to consider for your own gardens. And you can find those at Better Nurseries Everywhere. You've been listening to- Or the to Arboretum. Uh, well, they're not having any sales, so um, yeah. <laughs> you can find them at the Arboretum sales when those resume. And uh, maybe spring, we'll, we'll see. If they, if they have an announcement, anyone from the Arboretum listening, if you have an announcement or an update on the status of your annual sales, please send it to davisgardenshow at gmail.com because I know lots of people are asking me at my retail nursery when the Arboretum is gonna be selling plants again. And even though they're kind of vaguely in competition with me, we want the Arboretum back. So let us know if you have an update on that information. And if you have a question, use that same email address, davisgardenshow at gmail.com, write to us. Tell us not only what your question is, but the stories of your successes or your failures. Or, you know, if you just like the show and want to encourage us to keep going. I also appreciate the folks that have been sending pictures of their leaf miners. We talked about this a couple weeks back and we wanted to see what your leaf miner situation was. Great pictures and I'm holding on to them. I have a feeling sometime next spring I'll be writing an article about this particular pest. So I'll be contacting you for permission to use these great photographs. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRT LP 95.7 in Davis, California.